Second Kings chapter 4, if you want to turn there in your Bibles with me as we continue our study through Second Kings together, we're looking now at the ministry of Elisha, the prophet, as he is now taken over really as sort of the successor of Elijah. And these men both definitely used powerfully by God. We see differences in some ways in their ministries. Uh, but Elijah, we saw last time, beginning to experience the power of God working through his life. And as we go now into chapter 4, again, we have another chapter that reveals to us just the miraculous power of God in different ways. As the Lord was stepping in, as he was intervening in situations where really there were human impossibilities but yet God is unlimited. God has no limitations. And what is impossible for man is still possible with God. Uh, there's nothing impossible for God, the Bible tells us. And important for us to remember that in light of these stories that God has recorded in his word. He's given us demonstration to reveal to us who he is, the kind of God he is. So no doubt the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And certainly as we hear these things, we shouldn't just look at them as interesting stories. We should look at them and it should stir faith in our hearts to believe God for things that we go through in our lives. Our story may not be exactly the same. Our challenge or circumstance or dilemma may not be exactly the same. But it's the same God who loves us just as much and has the same power and grace and ability to work in each and every one of our lives. So chapter 4 verse 1 opens up by telling us of this first miraculous event that took place with a woman uh, who was a widow in desperation. It says there that a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets. Now remember we've talked about before these sons of the prophets or a reference, it seems, to what was kind of what we think like a school of the prophets, almost like a ministry training school. Some believe this existed as far back all the way as the days of Samuel. And we see these references where it does seem, even in Samuel's day, where there were sort of different locations where there were young men who were called by God, who had a calling for ministry upon their lives. And it seems that they were in different locations, kind of being trained and mentored and equipped and prepared in the things of God's word and how to do ministry, kind of like ministry training schools by those who were more mature in the works of God. And it seems that on occasion, those who were spiritual leaders would kind of like on a circuit go around to these different areas and would spend time with them. And so we see Elijah as well as now Elisha uh, doing the same thing. And what we're now being told here in verse one of chapter four is that this is one of the wives of one of these men it seems that was in this school of ministry this school of the prophets one of the wives uh, of these men apparently had died maybe in the midst of his training or maybe he's already engaged in his ministry but this is a family that was serving the lord uh, this was a family that was doing ministry a godly family and yet it says that this woman who was one of the wise of the sons of the prophets, she cried out to Elijah. She pours out her dilemma saying, your servant, my husband is dead. So something happened. Her husband has now died. She finds herself a widow. And if that weren't enough, she finds herself a widow who we're also going to see is in the midst of a financial dilemma. And she says, you know, your servant feared the Lord. And now the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be slaves. So 
again, as we've talked about before, one of the most vulnerable conditions for someone to be in in that ancient culture was to either be a widow or an orphan. Uh, and for a widow to find herself in that spot was a very jeopardizing condition because many times she didn't have the same opportunities or privileges to go out and work and supply for herself. In many ways, they lived very dependent upon fathers and husbands to care for them and provide for them. So this put her in a very vulnerable state. And there was nothing more vulnerable really for a widow than a widow who had children. And there was nothing more vulnerable for a widow who had children than to be a widow with multiple children. And there's nothing more vulnerable than a widow who had multiple children to be a widow with multiple children in debt with a mean creditor who isn't just going to send the collection agency, but he's actually going to come and he's going to take your sons to be his slaves to pay off the debt. And again, this was something according to law that they were able to do. They could accrue family members basically to come and work off the debt. And that's what's happening here, which puts her in more jeopardy because now her sons can't go out in any way to try and work or help provide for their mother to keep the family alive. So this is a real major dilemma that they're facing. She's already dealing with the loss of her husband, the grief and the pain of that. Now on top of it, she's got a financial dilemma. She's in debt. She can't afford to get herself out of this position. The creditor's now coming. He's going to take away her two sons. So now she risks losing her two children on top of losing her husband. And they're going to be taken away to function as slaves to pay off this uh, level of debt that they have as a family. So she comes now to Elijah and she just she's just pouring out her heart to him telling him what's going on. And again, as we look at this, what a very fitting reminder that, as I said, even those who love and serve the Lord face trials. Uh, if you love Jesus and you serve the Lord and you give your life even to the service of the Lord like this family here did and to ministry and the things of God, that does not make you immune from problems. Uh, it doesn't mean that if you are loving the Lord or serving the Lord or letting your life be useful for God and dedicating yourself to his purposes, that that means somehow you're going to be shielded and protected from any struggles or difficulties or tragedies or hardships. Uh, these things come to everyone. Uh, in fact, Jesus even made a promise. Many of us don't like it. In John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will face tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In other words, Jesus promised of all the many things he promised, one of the things he promised is tribulation. In this world, you will have problems. In other words, if you find yourself, why am I having problems? What's wrong? Why am I having... Because Jesus promised that you would have problems. If you don't have problems, something's wrong. Jesus isn't fulfilling us. Jesus promised in this world, you will face tribulation. It's part of being in this world in a fallen condition of sin and difficulties and sickness and disease and selfish and sinful people. It's part of this earth experience because this isn't heaven yet. And it's part of what makes us develop character and keeps us dependent upon the Lord and helps our prayer life and helps us with humility and faith. And honestly, it's part of what makes us appreciate looking forward to heaven where there will be the absence of all that. What would be that much different and great about heaven if, if, if Jesus made this earth like heaven? We want to stay here forever, knowing us. That's what makes heaven so heavenly and what we long for. So here she is. She, again, they've dedicated their life to the Lord, but yet they find themselves in this place. And sometimes, like this family here, we may find ourselves in a dilemma that it's beyond our ability 
humanly to resolve. There is nothing this woman can do to fix the problem. She's facing a hardship. She's dealing with a dilemma. And there is nothing humanly that she can do to fix the situation. There's no human answer. She needs help and intervention. She needs the help and intervention of God. And so she wisely goes to a spiritual leader who was in contact with God, a representative of the Lord. And she goes to that spiritual leader and basically says, look, I need some help. I can't resolve this. This problem is beyond me. There's nothing I can do. I need some help and intervention. And look, sometimes that is where we come to. We come to a place where there, it's just something beyond our ability to fix the situation. And maybe we need to go to someone like a spiritual leader and say, I need some help or we need to go directly to the Lord. I need some help, Lord. I need intervention here. I can't solve this. There's nothing I can do. I'm in jeopardy. It's something that's outside of my control. So verse 2, Elijah, being a man of compassion, said to her, verse 2, what shall I do for you? Now, I like this picture because Elijah, his predecessor, a lot of times he just was very disconnected and he would just show up on the scene with a word from the Lord and he kind of pronounce a real heavy word from God or he'd do a miracle or he'd, you know, call down fire from heaven. I mean, that was kind of Elijah's ministry. Elisha, who was used just as powerfully of the Lord, seemed to just kind of have a little bit of a different temperament. He seemed to just be someone who was a little bit more soft-hearted, someone who just kind of, you know, kind of erred more on the, the spectrum, the side of kind of compassion and concern he was a lot more sympathetic individual it seems in some ways again god uses all different personalities and we got to figure out our lane and stay in our lane and follow who god's called us to be in life and be comfortable with that but elijah was just a very compassionate man so he hears this woman's story and the first thing he says is not i'll go pray for you or thus says the lord he says what can i do how can I help in essence? He's saying, what shall I do for you? What can, what can I do to help resolve this? And I like this because I think God wants us as his servants to have compassion and to seek to offer our help to people who are in dilemmas. Not to just listen to their dilemma, but to genuinely after listening say, what can I do to help? Is there something I can do? I mean, maybe it is just praying. But to have a heart that when you hear a dilemma or somebody's difficulty, that you actually have enough compassion to say, what can I do for you? How can I help you in that situation? How can I be of assistance in some way? So Elijah asks her this and he says, tell me, what do you have? He says, verse two, in your house. And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. And he said to her, here's his guidance now. No doubt the Lord gives this word to share with her as a resolution. Go now, he says, borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. Take notice. He says, get as many as you can. That's part of the instruction. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you. This was to be a private thing. You and your sons, and then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she gets direction now from the prophet how she's to work through the resolution of this situation. And apparently God gives this thought to Elijah to pass along as his way he's going to miraculously intervene and help this woman in her dilemma. And he begins by asking her, tell me, what do you have in your house? In other words, I know what you don't have, money. <laughs> 
I know what you don't have, a way to fix this problem. I know you don't have much at all because you're in great debt. You've lost your husband. You're about to lose your two sons and the creditor's coming to take everything away from you. But he says, but what do you have? Is there anything that you do have? What's at your disposal? And she says, well, all I have, I have nothing left, she says, in my house but a jar of oil, a jar of olive oil. This is a very common thing. It was used for many different purposes, for cooking, for heating, for medicinal purposes. It was a very common item in a household in that day. She says, I just have a jar of oil left. That's the only thing I have left. But here's the thing. Take notice that then the process she's instructed to go through and the miracle that we end up seeing God doing with this oil Take notice what happens is God often begins his work by using just what we have. A lot of times when God wants to work, we're so focused on what we don't have. Well, I don't have this and I don't have that. And, I, and it's not like this and, I, and I'm missing this and we don't have that. And a lot of times God says, what do you have? What do you have? Remember what God did with Moses? God told Moses, what's in your hand? He said, a staff. A rod. It was the shepherd's rod. And, and remember that rod and that shepherd's staff ended up being the thing that God used. And ultimately it, it was referred to as the rod of God because he threw it down. Remember it miraculously turned into a snake and then it swallowed the snakes of all the magicians. And But again, the idea, what's in your hand? What do you have? I think it's something a lot of times that God wants us to be aware of. We're wondering about this or lacking that. And God just says, look, I'm going to work and I'm going to begin by just working what you do have. Just give me whatever you do have. Whatever little thing you do have. Well, this is it, Lord. I don't have nothing but this. He goes, okay, that's fine. We can work with that. I'm a God of multiplication. I'm a God of miracles. Just give me what you do have. Isn't that how the feeding of the 5,000 happened? Everybody's hungry. There's nothing around. And they say, see what we have around here? And they come up with five loaves and two fish. And what do they do? They take what little bit they have. They put it into the hands of Jesus. And then the work and the miracle of God starts to happen. And just be encouraged. You know, maybe sometimes you find yourself wrestling with the same thing, and maybe you are even tonight in some way, and perhaps the Lord is just saying, Look, stop thinking about all, just what do you what do you have? Just start with whatever you do have. Whatever little bit you have, just put it into the hands of the Lord, and God can use that in amazing ways. So she says, That's all I have. And interesting, God doesn't say, Oh, well, if all you have is a jar of oil, I was kind of thinking of a bread miracle. Right, God, you got a jar of oil, then I'll do an oil miracle. And keep in mind, this is a miracle working God. You have to think about these kind of things. You know, it's not like God went, I don't have any oil miracles up my sleeve. I just, that's, I wasn't thinking about an oil miracle. God says, you got oil? We're going to do an oil miracle then. So God says through Elijah, this is what I want you to do. Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. And he says, don't gather just a few. And then when you come in, Shut the door privately behind you and start pouring it in to the vessels and set aside the full ones. In other words, as she would start pouring, it would continue to just keep lasting and lasting and filling up vessel after vessel in the midst of this process as God would do this miracle of multiplication. Now, please take note, if you would here in verses three and four, that God's work, and it is going to be a miracle as our verses continue to unfold here, that God's work and solution it involved a few things on a human level. Is the power of God at work? Absolutely. Is the plan of God at work? Absolutely. But notice there's also human participation in the midst of the process. There's a cooperative thing happening here as God works. God is working in cooperation 
with human participation. There were some things that she did in the process and that God asked her to do. And again, did God have to do that? Of course not, right? God could have just snapped his fingers and there could have been a bunch of jars right there. God could have done anything. I mean, this is God. He didn't have to do anything that involved her, but God chooses to involve her in the process because God is a God that works in cooperation and participation with us, and he includes us so often in the process because in the midst of it, he's developing things in us. He's helping us to our own benefit. Three things that are very obvious in regards to her participation. First of all, this woman had to exercise faith in the process. Would you agree? I mean, she gets this instruction to just start gathering a bunch of empty vessels from all of her neighbors and to bring it back. And she's going to start pouring it into these vessels. And somehow it's going to keep filling up and filling up and filling up. And basically she's hearing what? I mean, and she has to believe by faith the word of the Lord. She has to believe, okay, God said he's going to do that. She has to choose to believe what God is able to do. She has to believe God's promise that God will fulfill his word and she has to obey in faith. That was part of her responsibility. She had to exercise faith. God was going to show his power. God was going to fulfill his word, but she had to act in obedient faith on what the word of God was. She had to walk this process out in faith. It took faith, I assure you, to go walk around and start having to ask people for empty vessels and she doesn't even have all the explanation. Which brings me to my second thing. It also involved a level of humility because I assure you if she's anything like you or I, it was probably a little bit of an awkward thing going from neighbor to neighbor knowing she was already in her situation and dilemma and in small little towns and villages, you know how the word spreads fast. That's the widow in debt over there. And now she's knocking on people's doors. She's already in debt. The creditors come and saying, could I borrow something? And she's probably, I can imagine, if she's anything like you or I, she's walking and she's thinking, mm, not Mrs. Johnson. No, no, I'm going to skip her house. And she, you know, has a, I'll try Mrs. Jones. She's a lot sweeter. She'll probably give me an apple pie too. I mean, I can imagine there's, there's a very humbling experience as she's having to ask, can I borrow a vessel? For what? I just, I just need to borrow a vessel. The Lord wants me to borrow. And again, this took humility. And a lot of times when we want to be open to the work of the Lord in our lives, it involves some humility. A lot of times we have to be willing to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and exercise humility to experience the Lord's work in our lives. So it took faith. It took humility. And let's not ignore, thirdly, it also involved and required putting in some personal work and a little sweat equity, you could say yourself. Because what did she have to do? She had to go out and gather vessels. I call that work. <laughs> she had to do something. You know, a lot of times, well, God will provide, well, God will provide. Right, God's a good provider. So get working and God will start providing. What did they have to do in the last chapter? Remember, God said, you dig ditches, I'll fill them with water. <laughs> That's the idea. God says, look, I promised to fill them with water, so start digging ditches. You dig the ditches, I'll fill them with water. Here, God says, you go get vessels, and I'll fill the vessels. And so she had to go out, and she had to put in some involvement. There was some personal work and labor involved. And again, I just love to see how, yes, the Lord works. He's a miracle-working God, but yet he includes us in the processes. 
that we have to exercise faith and humility and we need to put in some effort and it's through our effort that God's power is joined into that and God does what we can't do. We do what we can do and then God does what's beyond what we can do to help us in these kind of situations. So she's gathering around all these vessels that says to come back and then shut the doors and start pouring. So verse 5, as we said, she went from him, shut the door behind her, her sons brought the vessels to her And she poured it out, verse 6, Now it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said, There is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. So this miracle, just like God promised, starts to happen. And she literally, together with her sons, again, she's not doing this publicly. It wasn't for everybody for you know, to see God. It was a private thing. God was graciously, mercifully helping that family, providing for them somewhat anonymously. Nobody knows what's going on. They're behind closed doors. And you can imagine, I, I kind of trying to envision the process. Here she is with her sons and her her sons are seeing the hand of God and she says, bring me another vessel. And they bring a vessel and she starts pouring that oil out of it and she, it's filling up and filling up and she's thinking, okay. And the whole thing fills up. And I don't know. I mean, does she then pour it out to the last dreg and then the boy takes the vessel and he goes into the other room and she's thinking, should I look? And she looks in that vessel and all of a sudden it's, it's full of oil again. Bring me another vessel. They bring in, there's another vessel, mama. Pours it all out. All right, well, at least we got two. She sets it down. Look, there's oil in it again. It's not running out. How's this happening? And her children, again, experiencing the hand of God, seeing God miraculously provide. And we're not told how many, but this is why certainly the prophet said, do not gather a few. Get a lot of vessels. Get a lot of vessels because take notice what happens in verse 6 as this miracle's happening. It says they're bringing one after one and then there comes a certain point. We're not told how many. Where's verse 6? She says, bring me another vessel. And they said to her, mom, there is not another vessel. No more vessels available. And notice when there's no more vessels available, it says at that point, the oil ceased. That is the miracle stopped, if you would. The fountain of God's provision and supply stopped at that point. Interesting to take note there. Again, don't want to make too much out of it in verse 6, but it is interesting that God sometimes, and we do see this in the Bible, uh, that God sometimes does work, it seems, in proportion to our faith, to our willingness, to our obedience. And again, it almost seems to give the indication that when there were no more vessels, there was no more availability for God to keep working then God ceased the miracle right there, which almost implies if there would have been another vessel or two or three or five, God would have kept working because God would have said, as long as there's availability, I'm going to keep working. And I think this is a good reminder for all of us because sometimes God does work in proportion to our faith. That's why we want to believe God. That's why we want to be, keep being obedient, keep making ourselves available and willing. Interesting, the Bible refers to our lives, doesn't it, as vessels, vessels of honor fit for the master's use and as long as we continue to keep providing god an available vessel and saying lord here we are i'm available i think as long as there's available vessels that the power of god keeps working the hand of god keeps working god keeps doing what god wants to do and sometimes once the available vessels cease then that's when god's work ceases 
because the Lord says there's no more available vessels, so I'll cease what I was doing in that situation. And again, what a great reminder for us. Availability, never forget, availability provides God a channel to keep working through. And so as vessels of the Lord, we want to say, Lord, we want to see you do all you want to do, so we want to keep providing you another vessel, another opportunity to be available so that the oil, again, which is often a symbol of the Spirit in the Bible, can keep flowing and God can keep working without ceasing what he wants to do. Verse 7, then she came out and told the man of God what had happened. And then Elijah says to her, go sell the oil, pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. Now that's called biblical financial stewardship. She, she has no idea how all this is supposed to work. And at the end of it, she says, wow, this miracle happened. And look at all these vessels and they're full of oil. And he says, okay, now, I was just on the phone with Dave Ramsey. No, she didn't say that. Larry Briquette, financial, you know, here's what I want you to do. Sell all the oil. It's valuable. Pay off your debt first. Pay off your debt. And then live on the remainder because there was excess to then be able to provide for them and take care of them. So what great wisdom, again, just the, the, the power of God and yet so practical in the midst of this. This is called stewardship, God's provision, the way God works, but yet he wants us to be good stewards and responsible when he does as well. Well, verse eight, we now come to the second miracle that takes place. It says it happened one day that Elisha then went to Shunem and there was a notable woman. So now we're gonna have the opposite. First, he helps out a very poor widow. Now he's going to interact with a rather wealthy, notable, the idea is woman and her husband who are better, somewhat well off, you might say, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. And it says when he was there, this notable woman, she persuaded him to eat some food. So it's not like he's asking for free meals while he's traveling around. She takes notice and her and her husband, we're going to see, keep offering hospitality. So she keeps inviting him to eat. When he comes through the area, so it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there and eat some food. He would benefit from their hospitality. And she said to her husband, verse 9, Look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please, she says, let us make, she says, a, a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. And so it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. So again, just very gracious, very hospitable here. She, she takes notice of Elisha and he travels through this area periodically. This is a woman who seems to have a heart for God. So she offers to make some connections. She's making some meals for him when he's coming through the area. And then ultimately she goes to her husband and she says, look, I can discern this is, this is a godly man. This is somebody whose God's hand is on, God's using him. She says, we should, we should use the means and the resource God's given us to help him out. Why don't we create a little room? We have the money to do that. We have the capability. So she says, let's put him a little room with a little office. We'll put a bed and a table and a chair and he can read his scrolls and prepare his little prophetic messages and we'll put a little lamp in there for him. And then wherever he comes through town, we'll have somewhere to stay. So again, just very graciously, hospitably helping out in this way, uh, a servant of the Lord. Again, being very respectful and submissive. Notice she asks her husband, can we do this? She doesn't just say, we're doing it. She doesn't just hire the contracting crew and tell her husband later. She says, can we do this? He says, okay, that, that's fine. 
Let's, let's build that out for him. And it happened, verse 11, that one day when he came there, Elijah turned into the upper room and he laid down, took a nap. And then it says, he then said to Gehazi, his servant. Now we'll see that Gehazi kind of becomes like a servant with Elisha, kind of like sort of his right-hand person helping him out. He turns to his servant Gehazi and says, call the Shunammite woman. And when he called her, he stood before him and he said, or he said to him, say now to her, look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? In other words, he's appreciative. They've shown him such hospitality. Hey, you, you've, you've created a room for us. I mean, every time we come through, you give us a place to sleep and you're providing meals for us. And he's just showing his appreciation here now. He just has gratitude that this family has done this to take him in and to take care of him in the midst of this time and season. So notice his gratitude and his appreciation motivates him to say, what can I do for you? I want to do something to bless you in return. He says, there's something I can do. Do you want me to go and, and speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? Elisha had connection to some of these people who had great power and influence. So he's saying, how can I help? And again, what a beautiful picture here because genuine gratitude and appreciation should always motivate us to want to bless and serve other people. When you are genuinely grateful and appreciative, it prompts you to want to bless and serve other people. And that's what he is here. He's appreciative. So he says, I, what can I do? It reminds me of Peter's uh, wife, it says, uh, Peter's wife's mother, when she was healed from a fever by Jesus, it says she got up and she started serving everybody around her. Again, she was just appreciative and gratitude is something that translates into service. So he's saying, what can I do? Well, she seemed rather content because she said, I dwell among my own people, which was basically a cultural way of saying, I, I really don't need anything. I dwell among my people. I'm content. The idea she's saying, I there's nothing that I would need to ask of. Now, verse 14 says, what then is this to be done for her? He asks his servant, Gehazi, something has got to be done for her. She, she's just not telling me, he says. Gehazi, what, what can we do for her? And Gehazi said, actually, what she's not informing you, she has no son and her husband is old. In other words, to this point, it seems that she was barren. Maybe her husband was beyond the years of being able to help conceive to give a child and again this was huge for them in that culture to not have a son meant you didn't have someone to pass on your family name to your lineage your property i mean this this was very big deal for them particularly in this jewish culture so she doesn't have a son they had longed to have a child and even a jew longed to have a son because your son might be the messiah and so every jewish woman longed to have a son and she had no son. Her, hu her husband was older at this point. So Elisha says, that's it. That, that's, that's what we can do for her. The Lord wants to bless her. And so he says, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. So he prophetically speaks a word of knowledge, knowing that God would want to do this to bless her. He says, next year, you're going to have a son. Now, when she hears this, understandably, look what she says, verse 16, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Now, she's not being 
unappreciative. What you have there is the expression of a woman who has longed for something in her life and has dealt with disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment and finally is at a place where in her own heart she's kind of come to that place where she kind of feels like, you know what, if I don't expect anything, I won't have to deal with the disappointment anymore. Don't tell, stop. Please don't tell me I'm going to have a son. Please don't say that. Again, in her heart, it's almost as if it's hard for her to hear that because she doesn't want to deal with the fear of further disappointment and letdown. And so I think to some degree, she's not willing to believe that this unexperienced dream can come true. So she just kind of tries to shut him down. Says, please don't say that to me. Please don't, don't, don't say that. And I think to some degree, you know, at times we can all relate to that. Sometimes we don't want to believe or have hope that something could still be possible in our lives. Because like this woman, maybe there's something, some dream or some expectation. Maybe it's having a child or maybe it's getting married or maybe it's, you know, it's just some turn of events, something that is very important to us that our heart longs for and it's never happened, never happened, never happened. We've prayed for it, waited for it, longed for it. And so it's almost as if we almost in a self-preservation mode can sometimes come to a place where we're so fearful of another possible disappointment that we almost become unwilling to believe that it's still possible. We almost become unwilling to have hope that God could still do it. And what it boils down to is because we're just afraid because of all the disappointment we've dealt with thus far. So this is kind of what's going on for her. She's almost not willing to believe that the dream is possible anymore. Verse 17, but notice, but the woman conceived the word of the lord came to pass god did it and bore a son when the notice the key word appointed time had come that's always important to remember of which elisha had told her and the child grew and it happened one day that he went out to his father to the reaper so it's reaping time it's harvest time in the field he this is go to work with dad day he goes out with his dad with the harvesters and reapers and in the midst of that, verse 19, he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. So something happens. He's out that day, young boy, maybe he's eight years old, 10 years old. And all of a sudden he starts complaining of bad pain in his head. Could be sunstroke. Maybe he's having an aneurysm. Maybe, you know, something, a meningitis, some believe, but some horrible pain in his head. He starts crying. His father says to the servant, hey, rush him home, bring him home to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees as she was consoling her son. It says till noon and then he died. So now another tragedy. And imagine this son that she had longed for for all these years. And finally the dream comes true. And now the dream just crashed. And you can imagine how that would just throw her in utter turmoil again. Now she finally has a child. She's got to enjoy him for maybe six, eight, ten years. And now this child has just tragically died. Well, verse 22, here she is in the midst of this horrible, dark place. Her son has just died. But here's what's incredible. In the midst of that horrible, dark place, her heart is stirred with faith somehow. Because rather than just give up all hope, she seems to think that if she reaches out to the prophet of God, perhaps God may do something to intervene. So it says, verse 
uh, 21, that when she laid him on the bed, she went up and laid him, excuse me, on the bed of the man of God. So she brought him up to that bedroom where Elijah had built and she shut the door and she went out. Again, probably too trying to understand practically hide his body because in that culture, they buried their dead immediately. And I wonder if in some way she went and put him up in the bedroom where Elijah was to hide him away because she wanted to give God a chance to work. And she thought if anybody finds out he's dead, they may just start burial processes. And I believe God might raise him from the dead. And so perhaps this is even an indication of her faith. She puts him up in that room and it says, verse 22, she called to her husband. Notice says, please send me one of the young men, one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. And so he said, why are you going to him today? It's neither the new moon or the Sabbath. In other words, it's not a holy day or like a church day. Why, what do you want to go talk to him for, he says. And she said, it is well. Now, that's pretty astonishing. She chooses not to tell her husband. Again, is it that he's not a believer? Is it that she doesn't want to alarm him? Is it she has so much faith that she says, it is well, because she's thinking it's well with my soul, <laughs> because I know that God is a miracle-working God. I don't know. But she doesn't disclose what happened. She just wants a servant and an animal to travel on to go see the prophet. So verse 24, she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace. She says, drive and go forward. Don't slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. Don't slow down, she says. So she departed, went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God, that's Elisha, saw her far off, that he said to his servant Gehazi, look, the Shunammite woman, please run now to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? In other words, is, is everything okay? And she answered, it is well. Now take notice, she opted again not to tell Gehazi's servant. It's almost as if this woman is clearly purposely waiting to only share this news with someone that she feels safe sharing it with. And I'll tell you, sometimes when people are dealing with something very difficult, very sensitive, honestly, sometimes in those situations, people are only comfortable sharing what's going on with someone they feel very safe with, very confident with, Someone they genuinely believe is a healthy individual. And so now this is two times she's not telling anyone why she's pursuing the prophet. Verse 27, now when she came to the man of God at the hill, it says she caught him by the feet. So she falls down at his feet in humility and desperation. But Gehazi, the servant, came near to push her away. <clears throat> but the man of God said, let her alone. For her soul is in deep distress. He discerned something was very painful going on inside of her. For the Lord, look at this, for the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So take notice. He's very sensitive to her and her deep distress. I mean, she's distraught. She falls down at her feet, but he shows incredible sensitivity to this woman who's in utter pain and anguish in her heart. And I love this picture again of Elisha as a servant of the Lord because I'll tell you, I truly believe that the Lord wants us to be very sensitive to people who are in great anguish and pain. 
And that in those times, we would exhibit the compassion of God to protect their heart, to embrace those in pain. You know, I was just even thinking this you know, afternoon, even preparing today of just a little over a year ago when very close friends of ours, you know, some of our, our best friends back in York, PA, that when their 18-year-old son hung himself and, and committed suicide in the home. And it happened, I believe, if my memory serves right on a Saturday, so we couldn't get there till Sunday after church. And by the time that we arrived, he had been on the you know, life-saving you know, machines and was still on them and everybody was there in the hospital. When you walk into a setting like that and, and you walk into a room like that and you have all these people and you could just, you could feel the pain in the room. And you have people in every range of anguish. I mean, to the point of some people just they, you know, they're, they're kind of closed off. Other people, there were times when, you know, for example, one of the, uh, you know, young gals that, that found him, one of the girlfriends of the older brother that, that found him. Again, they actually found him in that condition, hanging there in the basement. I mean, and she, at one point, I remember being out in the hall with her, myself and her and my wife, and she just, she hysterically just falling over the floor and freaking out and screaming. And, and it was creating quite a scene in the hospital. But you know what? I didn't care. So what? Deal with it. And the per little hospital representative, shh, no, how about, shh, I'm going to shh you in a minute, you know. This girl's in anguish. We were, this is not a, I mean, in those situations, we need to be compassionate with people. Their world's falling apart. This woman, her world was, her son just died. Her world was falling apart. It wasn't a time for her to get it together. It was a time for her to lose it. And that was Okay. And here, Elisha, again, he, the servant wants to push her away and he says, let her alone. She's in deep distress. And he just protects her heart and lets her be in pain and anguish. But notice, he doesn't even know what's going on at this point, which is interesting. He says there, the Lord has hidden it from me and not told me. Now, I find that interesting. And let me just say briefly, Elisha, that means, heard from God so much, he was shocked when God didn't tell him something. That's the idea there. He says, I don't know. The Lord hasn't told me what's going on this time. Implying that God spoke to him so much, he was really baffled when God didn't speak to him because he heard from God so much. And he's like, I don't know. The Lord hasn't told me this time. She's in deep distress, but the Lord hasn't revealed it to me. Man, I want to be like that. I want the Lord to be revealing things to me and speaking to me so much that I'll be shocked when he doesn't talk to me. And I'll be surprised when he hasn't revealed something because we're in such close communication. Verse 28, so she said, did I ask for a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Again, you can tell she's, she's hurt. She's angry. In essence, like I said, what is she saying? She's saying, look, did I even ask you for this son? I didn't even ask for this son. Why would you give him to me and then allow him to be taken away? And again, she's just venting. She's just venting. And Elisha doesn't, hey, watch your mouth, lady. You're a, he doesn't do that. He just lets her vent. Just lets her say, you know, she's heartbroken. She's distraught. She doesn't understand why would you bless in this way. And then why would God let it be taken away? It's hard to process that. She doesn't understand. These are normal human ranges of emotion and experience. Well, verse 29, then he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready. Take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. 
And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and your soul lives, she says, I will not leave you. I'm not leaving your side now, she says. So Gehazi went ahead of them, laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him and told him, saying, the child is not awakened. In other words, it didn't work when I put the staff on the child. Verse 32, so then Elijah came to the house personally. And there was the child, the Bible wants it to be clear, lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, and he shut the door behind the two of them, and he prayed to the Lord. And he went up, and he lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands and stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. The idea is God was beginning to return life back to the child as he's pleading and interceding, stretched out on this child. And he returned and walked back and forth in the house. And then again, he didn't give up. He went and stretched himself out on him and the child sneezed seven times. Hopefully his face wasn't there when that happened. And the child opened his eyes. He came back to life. God gave his life back to him, resuscitated him from the dead. A miracle of God that took place here. Now again, look what Elisha does. It says, verse 32, he goes into the room... Verse 33, he shut the door and he started praying and pleading with God. Just asking for God to do a miracle, believing that God was able to do this. I mean, incredible faith. The child was dead. But Elisha sensed that in this situation, God wanted to do a miracle. Listen, does God always do miracles? Does God always heal? Does God always bring people back from the dead? No, that's usually the exception. And that's probably uh, an understatement. But in this situation, God wanted to work powerfully. Elijah sensed that. But the thing I love is, look, he's not looking for an audience. It just says, verse 33, that he went into the room and he shut the door and he just started praying and pleading with the Lord. This was just a man in faith who was just spreading himself out over this child and he is coming into complete personal contact with everything in this child's life and pleading that God would just move in a powerful way. And in this situation, it's the will of the Lord and God honors and blesses in this scenario. Now, again, how interesting to see not only the power of what happens there, but I think it's a beautiful picture as well. Again, it kind of looks, seems peculiar to us that he's stretched out and laying on this child. But I think in some ways, it's just a good reminder to us that sometimes when we want to help people, we need to be willing, maybe like Elisha, to be willing to come in complete personal contact with someone else if we're willing to help him. Look, can I remind you again, when someone was dead, if you touched them, that made you ceremonially unclean. Typically, Jews did not touch dead bodies. That would render you ceremonially unclean. But Elisha wanted to help so much, he said, you know what? Whatever I got to do to come into personal contact with this kid to help him, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to lay on a dead corpse and beg and plead God for God to do something powerful. And I love this because sometimes, listen, sometimes we need to be willing to come directly into contact with people who may not be in a condition we prefer. <laughs> and we, can't I just pray for them from afar? I mean, I really got to get in contact with that person. How about I just pray for them? And God's saying, no, what if I want you to get face to face with them? What if I want you to come right into personal contact with them out of love and sacrifice and if what it's going to take 
is for you to be willing to come in personal direct contact with them for me to be able to bring about my power and work in their life in this wonderful way. So Elisha here does this. He's just pleading over this child. God brings him back to life and he called Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite woman. So he called her and when she came into him, he said, pick up your son. And so she went in, fell at his feet, I imagine so, bowed to the ground and then she picked up her son it says, and went out. So, I mean, this incredible, incredible miracle takes place here. You know, let me, let me just say this, and please don't tune me out. We're going to finish the chapter, but just hear me in, in finally saying this. This chapter, and we didn't look at the other two miracles and the remainder of it that are short little examples, is just another one of those places in the Bible where God is setting before us the power of God. The power of God, whether it's provision, whether it's supply, whether it's sustaining, whether it's bringing something that's dead back to life, whatever it is, the next two miracles or two other miracles, one of change and transformation and how God can multiply. But I think we should always at times like this, not just read and say, wow, that's neat. What a cool Bible story. But we should read it in the present tense and realize, look, what are you facing tonight? in your life what are you facing what are you facing tonight that is beyond your ability but yet is not beyond God's capability do you believe in the power of God you know there's a question and an answer in the Bible the question comes in Genesis 18 where Abraham says is there anything too hard for the Lord and then Centuries later in Jeremiah 32, God answers the question through Jeremiah the prophet who says, Ah, Lord God, there is nothing too hard for you. Nothing at all. Father, we 